0: Thanks for listening to the Grace First Podcast. If you want to know more about us, head on over to gracefirst.church. Or, if you're in the Wichita area, come visit us, Sundays at 1015. Well, last week we looked at an identity of our local church, and we looked at Philemon, and that our identity as believers of Christ in a local congregation is that we are a family of God. And this morning, when we look at the family model, well, what is it that a family does? What is it that we do here at Grace First and other local churches? And we're going to be looking at the Great Commission as a model of that vision, as Jesus gave that to the disciples uh, before he ascended to heaven. So my question this morning to you is this, is what is your mission in life? What are you willing to live for? And what are you willing to die for? Last year, when Russia invaded Ukraine, the world watched this event unfold, but there were some who took action by actually voluntarily committing their lives to fight alongside the Ukrainian army. There were volunteers from countries like Great Britain, Australia, Germany, and even the U.S. who signed up to fight the Russians in Ukraine. They call themselves the Freedom Fighters. Now, I first learned about these fighters after the war in Iraq when many volunteers around the world actually joined to fight, uh, joined to help the Kurds fight ISIS. Now, I find this concept very fascinating because when there's a clear and present evil and danger in this world, well, it seems that people are more motivated with a sense of duty and a sense of purpose to fight that evil regime. But is this a cause worth dying for? Leon Dawson, a young British man who volunteered to fight for Ukraine, was asked by a reporter. says, are you prepared to lose your life? And his answer was, yes, I think so. See, even though there are political complexities and even a a lot of corruption that is tied to this conflict, to some, helping the Ukrainians who are suffering at the hands of their invaders is worth giving their life. But keep in mind, men and evil regimes will come and go in history. Their cause is short-lived. They want control of real estate and power, but their existence is temporary in nature. In Daniel 2.21, we're reminded that it is God who changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. Kings and kingdoms here on earth will rise and fall, but there is one king. And there is one kingdom which God calls, uh, for, which, for which God calls his people to live. It is the Lord Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. His kingdom is eternal. And his mission for his people fulfills an eternal purpose. Being on mission with Christ requires your total commitment. And the mission that he gives you requires you to pick up your cross And follow Christ even to the most brutal death known to man. Should that be your lot? See, your mission as a follower of Christ, should you choose to accept that mission, is to give your life in its entirety for the eternal cause of Christ. The question you must answer then is will you follow Christ and accept his mission? Will you give your life fully for the mission of Christ? Even it means your crucifixion. This morning in our passage, we see what this mission entails. It is through the words of Jesus at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. This command is often referred to as the Great Commission. And this was given to his disciples just before he ascended into heaven. And it is the common mission for his followers A mission which he entrusted his people to follow through. And it is an authority that we accomplish by his authority. You often hear the word commission in the military. Uh, When a battleship is commissioned before war, it is sent off on a mission. And an officer is often commissioned when he or she is given a conferred authority and that is sent out, entrusted to carry out a mission. Well, in the same sense, Christ has conferred or given his authority to his followers and in order to carry out the mission on his behalf. So what is the mission that Jesus gave us? Your mission for Christ as a follower of Christ is to make disciples of Christ. That is our mission. And last Sunday, we looked at Philemon and saw that our identity in Christ as a local church is that we are a family. And every family is unique. Every family has a heritage and traditions that are passed down through generations. I found it interesting that when I was dating April, okay, when I was dating April, one of the things I learned about her family was that she came from a family of dentists who served in the Air Force. Now, her father finished his career as a periodontist in the Air Force and retired, and Her two oldest brothers are also retired as Air Force periodontists. And her mother served as a dental assistant. And when I was dating her, she was a dental hygienist. Well, I guess you could say that dentistry runs in her family and service to the Air Force also runs in the family. Well, the idea of a heritage being passed down through generations is nothing new, it is common. And I'm sure you know people like this, generations of farmers, generations of pastors, or uh, even uh, real estate agents. Well, we as a family of God here at Grace First, we are no different. There is a mission and a tradition that has been passed down to us that we must continue to fulfill. So what is it that we do here at Grace First? It is the mission that the church has been accomplishing for the last 2,000 years. Our mission as Christians is to make disciples who make disciples. Our mission is to make followers of Christ who make followers of Christ. So this morning, through Jesus' Great Commission, we're going to look at five principles of disciple-making. If you'd like to follow along, I have printed out the, well, Aaron really printed it out, but I have given the outline uh, on the bulletin so you can follow along. So let's dive in. Would you join me in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20? Matthew 28. Now, I'm going to, this morning, actually read from the NASB, which is my personal Bible. Uh, But I do want to recommend the NIV, which is a few Bibles in front of you, are excellent translations. And 99% of the time, I'm going to be uh, preaching out of the NIV because it reads very well. Uh, But this morning, I'm just going to read uh, from the NASB. Uh, And so if you would like to follow along, join me in verse 18, Matthew chapter 28. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." The first principle of disciple-making we see here is that disciple-making is actually a function of the church. Disciple-making is a function of the church. If you ever wondered, well, who does this commission apply to? Well, it is for the disciples of Christ. Simply put, a disciple is someone who follows. It is a follower of Christ, and in our case, we say Christian. One who follows Christ learns and obeys the teachings of Christ to be more like him. And a group of disciples banded together in a local setting is called a local church. A local church is not a building, it's not a campus, but it's a group of committed Christ followers joined together on mission for Christ. When Jesus gave this commission in Matthew 28, who was he saying this to? Well, verse 16 tells us that it was to the 11 disciples, that was the 12 minus Judas, who had killed himself. And you see, the fulfillment of this commission was to be a group effort. It wasn't just given to Peter or John or just to James, but it was given to the group of the apostles. The 11 apostles hearing this, hearing this from Jesus, would have understood this to mean to work together to fulfill this by preaching the good news and planting churches around the world. They were to depend on each other's unique gifts of the Holy Spirit and rely on each other's strengths and weaknesses. See, this morning, if you are a prayer warrior, but public speaking is not your strength, or perhaps your health is in decline, then you can still fulfill the Great Commission by praying with other saints and other believers in the church church. If you're an evangelist, if you have a heart to go and even knock on doors, and you can speak 10 different languages, and you have no, no problem talking to people, well, then and you may have a, a, a desire, you may have a gift given by the Spirit to fulfill the commission by going out. But maybe you lack the resources. Well, then you can still fulfill the great commission by being sent out by the local church. And if you're blessed with wealth, and you can still fulfill the great commission by supporting a local church in completing this together with a church body. See, Jesus' intent for his mission accomplishment was that it would be fulfilled by groups of disciples or local churches and not by individuals. It was always to be a joint exercise and not a solo mission. You see, you cannot call yourself a Christian and not belong to a local church. 1 Corinthians 12, we see in verse 4, says that there are different gifts but the same Spirit. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. The body is a unit, though it is composed of many parts. See, there is no way that one believer alone can fulfill this great commission by himself because the various gifts of the Holy Spirit are given to a group of believers in a church. Not one disciple can exercise nor express all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The mission of Christ for the followers of Christ was always intended to be a group effort carried out by the local church. I've met some people who claim to be Christians. They say, you know, I I don't need a church. Uh, I go to uh, Young Life. I go to Crew. uh, I'm part of a a BSF, Bible Study Fellowship. And, you know, those church people, they're such hypocrites. I don't need the church. And I've also even heard them cite the thief on the cross. And they would say, you know, that thief on the cross, he just needed Jesus. He didn't need the local church. Well, yes, that is true. The thief was saved and never belonged to a local church, but his example is not the norm. It is the exception. It is is the exception to display the gracious love of God. So, if you are not a committed member of a local church family, I want to challenge you by asking well, how are you obeying Christ in fulfilling the Great Commission by yourself? You cannot do it alone nor was it intended for you to do it alone. I want to encourage you to become a part of a church family through a local church that proclaims Christ, that baptizes believers, that teaches to obey all of his commands. Disciple-making is intended to be accomplished by disciples of Christ as a function of the local church. The second principle of disciple-making we see is that disciple-making requires preaching that leads to repentance and response. It it, it requires preaching that leads to repentance and response. In Jesus' commission, we see two essential elements of disciple-making, and that is baptism and teaching, which reflects acts of repentance and acts of obedience. Baptism is the act of repentance and faith, and obedience is a proper response to the teaching of the gospel. But here's the problem How were the disciples going to bring sinners to repentance and obedience to Christ? See, it's impossible for man to spiritually regenerate a sinner and, and turn him from sin to Christ because this is a work of God. So, by what means were they to bring sinners to repentance and obedience? Well, the answer is actually given to us in Luke chapter 24, verses 45 and 47. This is what it says. Then Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. The, repentance of the, gospel, the preaching of the gospel is a primary means which the Holy Spirit uses to bring sinners to repentance. Romans 10.17 tells us that faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. When the gospel is preached, the proclamation is the power of God for salvation for all those who hear and believe. Then when a sinner repents and turns to Christ, the act of commitment from turning from sin to turning to Christ is baptism. If you have never been baptized, and you are ready to proclaim that you are a disciple of Christ, then I encourage you to make that commitment through a once-for-all act called baptism. Though there is not a set age in the New Testament of when a believer can be baptized, the practice of the early church was that the candidate for baptism understood what it meant to be saved by faith in Christ and to live a holy life for Christ. This is why in baptism, you proclaim your testimony to the church so that the church can affirm that your faith is genuine in Christ and that your repentance of sin is genuine. Part of saying yes to Jesus is saying no to the world, which involves understanding the difference between a life devoted to Christ and a life lived in worldly pleasures. So when it comes to the age of baptism, my recommendation is somewhere around 12 or 13 or older, as this was the age that the Jews in the Old Testament considered the threshold of adulthood. Now, obviously, there are exceptions to this, But this is usually the age when most people grasp these concepts and are able to convey their understanding of the gospel and what it means to be saved by Christ and to live a holy life. For parents of young children, you do not want to rush them to be baptized. And let me just uh, comfort you by saying that baptism, the act of baptism itself, is not what saves you. It is our faith in Christ, and it is Christ who saves us. But the act of uh, baptism is our commitment to it. It is it's our act of commitment. And for parents, you want to observe and look for evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. You want to look for evidence of spiritual regeneration in their life to make sure that their uh, faith in Christ is genuine. We would call them baptismal candidates in training. When you're ready to make that declaration publicly before the church, and are ready to proclaim your story with an understanding of how Jesus saved you from your sins, the pastors and the elders and even your parents, we would love to talk to you about that. As a wedding ceremony is a once-for-all public act of commitment for marriage in the sight of God and in the sight of the families of the bride and groom, well, baptism is a public commitment of a believer to Christ in the sight of God and the church family for disciples of Christ. Gospel preaching leads to faith, and baptism is a proper response of obedience for disciples of Christ. The third principle of disciple-making we see is that disciple-making requires disciples to go in person. Now, I do need to feel uh, that I need to clarify in our day That what Jesus meant here and the way that the disciples understood this was to go in person and not necessarily on Facebook posts or on online church or on social media. Now, if you're a Bible scholar or a missionary or former pastor, I know there are several of you in here. You have studied this passage extensively and you may have learned that the the English translation of the command go does not have the same weight in the original Greek as the primary command to make disciples. This is grammatically true. The main force of the command here rests with the disciple making and not necessarily the go. But in this context, where disciple making is to be extended to all nations, the going is a necessary part and a necessary connection to the disciple-making. See, so the weight of the force is to be obeyed to go still remains. In other words, going in person is a necessary step of disciple-making. So you and I, we must go. One of the practices that that we as a society have adopted in the last couple of years is the increased use of of social media and Zoom, right, for conference calls, um, Microsoft Teams, or Facebook Live. Now, these are helpful tools for businesses or meetings, and there are some great advantages to these platforms, especially for those who uh, cannot or no longer can be with us due to either disability or illness But when it comes to evangelism and building new relationships with new people, these platforms are very limited and not as effective. Well, why is that? Well, so much of a person's character, their personality and personhood is tied to relationship building. And that when you remove the element of physical presence where we most closely experience one another, Building new relationships for gospel conversations becomes very challenging. Virtual platforms can be helpful tools for ministry in certain cases, but can never replace the experience of gathering or meeting in person. And the term virtual, well, what does that mean? Virtual means not real, right? The author of Hebrews emphasized this very point in Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. And this is why I believe it's in there. He says this, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Evangelism and mission requires the followers of Christ to go in person and to come together in person for encouragement and fellowship. As disciples of Christ, we must meet new people, we must talk to them, and we must show them the love of Christ by building relationships with them so that we can share the gospel with them. One of the most unexpected opportunities in ministry that I was given was to serve as a chaplain for the Washington Nationals through a Baseball Chapel. In the spring of 22, or I'm sorry, it was spring of 2020, I began serving with Baseball Chapel. Now, before we started, they came to me and they said, hey, this is a wonderful ministry opportunity. We want you to go preach the gospel. and We want you to shepherd the players, the coaches, their wives, and their uh, girlfriends, and the staff, if you can meet them. I said, okay, I think I can do that. Put me in, coach. (laughs) And during the spring training that year, we had one in-person chapel with the players. Well, as soon as the regular season hit in 2020, everything that I was told about the ministry went right out the window. And everything, everything from the chapel ministry uh, to Bible studies, everything had to be done online because I came in the start of the pandemic. And as a result of all the restrictions that were placed, it made it very challenging. It was hard. It was awkward. You know, imagine what it would be like if they said, we want you to build new relationships on Zoom. And I can tell you, I can testify, it was very tough. Holding Zoom chapels was frustrating and less than ideal. There were a lot of, can you hear me now? Can you see me now? But God was gracious. See, there were several faithful players who came regularly to hear the gospel. And the following year, even though it was limited, God opened up more opportunities for in-person ministry. At first, going to the stadiums on Sundays was very uncomfortable. It was very awkward at times. It felt like going into an uncharted territory, a closed mission field. But this was the opportunity for gospel proclamation. And no matter how uncomfortable I felt, I knew that I needed to go. It was a way of God sharing with me, go and start talking to these people. Go and start building these relationships with them. And you go and start preaching the gospel. Whether they made $15 an hour or $15 million an hour, I started started talking to them, getting to know them, to share the gospel Slowly, as I began meeting more people, learning their names, the camera crew, the coaches, the players, the security guards even, we began to build relationships. And over time, they recognized me. Sometimes they called me father, which I had to correct them. But they recognized me as a chaplain that carries the Bible. Well, by the end of the season, I was able to pray for a staff member who was struggling with suicide. I was able to hold premarital counseling for a player and his fiance. And towards the end of the season, our dugout was full. We were getting regularly 12 to 14 players in the dugout. Now, why do I share this? Partly to reemphasize that this is a work of a local church. I couldn't have done this without the church sending me and allowing me to carry out this ministry. I was sent by my local church to minister to them And even the missionaries that we support here at this local church, here at Grace First, they're fulfilling the Great Commission because we are supporting them. And then we are sending them to go. All these fruits of the ministry that we see as part of fulfilling the Great Commission is a joint effort with the local church. I share this also because we as disciples of Christ, every one of us, are also commanded to go. And we must go in the name of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit as God uses us for his mission accomplishment. Yes, there will be moments where you may be scared. There will be moments where you may feel awkward about sharing the gospel. But know that it is the Holy Spirit who is going to give you those opportunities and give you the words to proclaim the truth. It may be your coworker at Spirit, or the people that you're dominating at the pickleball courts, or the ones that may be dominating you, or maybe your little league or soccer families, or even your neighbors. But it simply begins with a high and getting to know them and saying, What is your story? We must step out of our comfort zone and go. As the incarnate Son of God stepped out of his comfort zone to come to us, was sent by the Father, we must go in person as we are sent by by the Son. Matthew 5.14 says, You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Go and shine the light of Christ. Do not hide it under a bushel. But wherever you go, let your light of Christ shine brightly. Disciple-making requires disciples to go. The fourth principle of disciple-making is that disciple-making is not an option. It is not an option. The command in verse 19 to make disciples is a clear command. It is an imperative from the Lord Jesus which means that these principles of disciple-making we have seen this morning are not optional. We must engage in the work of disciple-making together as a local church. We must preach the whole counsel of God for repentance and response, teaching his people to not just uh, obey the passages that aren't controversial, but all that he has commanded. So where are his commands found then? It is found in the very Bible. The books in front of you. The 39 books of the Old Testament. And the 27 of the New Testament. These are the teachings of the Jesus and the apostles. And the Old Testament is scripture that Jesus affirmed as God's words. See, we can't just pick and choose to just believe the convenient truths that would make us non-controversial in our culture. But we must obey all that Jesus commanded us to obey including the most difficult ones and the most countercultural truths about the gospel that could isolate you and may even get you uh, fired or get you uh, sent away from your uh, social circles. teaching such as to flee from sexual immorality, which is any sexual relationship outside of a marriage between a man and a woman, to affirm that human life begins in the womb And to recognize that the preaching of the word of God in the assembly of his people is to proclaim by a man, biblically qualified as a shepherd, elder of the church. Well, why is that? For the Bible tells us so. That is why we obey. When we obey God's command for our families, for our church, for our society, by living out God's design for our lives, the result is beauty, peace, and order. This is why when we get together for church-related gatherings, we gather for the Word of God. The Word is at the center of our gatherings. We get together to study the Bible, whether that's at the men's group, women's Bible study, fireside groups, youth group, children's group, young adults group. We are taught the Bible And we must be a learner, the students of his word. For the learning of God's word will help us and guide us to obey his word. This is what makes our gatherings, our get-togethers, very different than the social gatherings that we see around the world. We gather for a purpose, to better understand his word so that we may encourage one another and love one another. Now hear me well. Not every meal that you share with your friends from church has to be a Bible study. You don't have to crack open the Bible and uh, do a call to worship or anything like that. But even those gatherings, you're fulfilling a purpose that we ch- which we should be mindful of. And that is, we gather to encourage and to love one another as we grow together in the fellowship of Christ. It is a way of obeying his command given to us in John 13, 34. He says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. Church, the work of making disciples is not optional for us. It is a clear command from our Lord. The teaching of the Bible and learning to obey is central to what we do as a church family. We must teach and obey everything that Jesus commanded, the whole counsel of his word revealed to us in the Bible. The final principle of disciple-making is that disciple-making is grounded in the triune love of God. Verse 19 tells us that when a sinner repents and is baptized, the baptism is to be conducted in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Here we see an explicitly Trinitarian statement from Jesus of the one monotheistic God revealed in three distinct persons. To be baptized in the name of God is to be joined in union with God himself. You see, before even time began, God was. He is eternal. He was and is and always will be the great I am. He exists in perfect love and in perfect union in one essence or one being in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The love within this trinity was sufficient and required nothing else. His love was and is and always will be pure and sinless and perfect. And it was out of this love that God created man in his own image to represent him as the pinnacle of the creation. But when sin entered the world through the rebellion of Adam and Eve, it separated us forever from our Creator, and we could no longer represent Him as we were intended. Not only did their sin separate us, but we must pay for the penalty of our sin. That is, in the place called hell, where the wrath of God is to be poured out on all sin and evil forever because God is just. He is holy, and he cannot be both just and allow the presence of sin in his presence. But remember, his unfailing love endures forever. The Father sent the Son, and the Son shed his blood on the cross, so that those who repent of their sin and are joined in union with Christ by faith may be given the gift of new life. Through faith in the Son, we, are, we who are sinners are reconciled to God and we enter into a triune love of God. This is what salvation is. It's being joined to God through our union with the Son and partaking in the perfect triune love of God as we enjoy Him now and forever. When you become a disciple of Christ, you enter into a loving relationship with Him forever. And when you do... You are given a new purpose in life. Your purpose is to go and tell the story so that others may also enter into his kingdom. That I was once lost, but now I'm found. That I was once blind, but now I see. As I have shared, our decisions in life leads to eternal consequences Our awareness of the wrath of God must lead us to proclaim Christ with a sense of urgency. Because if there is no holiness of God resulting in the wrath of God for sin, and if there is no hell, then there is no urgency to share the gospel. When you share the gospel of Christ, this message will be hated. It will be rebuked by many. And you as the messenger, you will be hated by them. You will experience trials. You will experience hardships. And disciple-making involves hardships that will make you uncomfortable. It may make you an outcast. It may even cost you your job and give you financial hardship. It is far from what some of the prosperity gospel preachers claim, that your best life is now. No. Disciple-making may even lead you to death. But remember this, remember this, the great commission, it ends with a promise. It ends not in a command, but in a promise of Jesus' comforting presence. The great I am, he is also the Emmanuel, and that is God with us. He is with us to the very end of the age. For his disciples are loved by the triune God, and in Christ, we are with him forever. And he is with us. We can go, knowing that even in the most difficult circumstances, he will never leave us nor forsake us. If you are going in the name of Jesus and in the authority of Jesus, whether you're going into a cartel-run city in Mexico or a town run by ISIS in Iraq or voodoo-ridden villages in Haiti or the Dominican Republic, the king of the universe is with you. At the beginning of the sermon, I mentioned those freedom fighters from across the world engaged in the war in Ukraine today, and how they were willing to die for a cause of helping the Ukrainians. Well, I ask you this morning, is it worth giving your life for the eternal purpose of making disciples for Christ? For Jesus, you, grace first, were worth his life, the life which he lived He lived for your righteousness. The death that he died, he died for our sin. And if you're a follower of Christ this morning, his eternal plan, in his eternal plan, you were worth living for and you were worth dying for. So is he worth your life? Make no mistake. If you follow Christ, you must be prepared to commit your life to him and follow him even to death. Luke 9, 23 gives us a sober reminder. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If you're willing to follow Christ and become his disciple, then your mission for Christ as a follower of Christ is to make disciples of Christ. Disciple making is a function of the church. And because it's a function of the church, Disciple making requires preaching that leads to repentance and response. Gospel preaching leads to faith, and faith leads to obedience. Disciple making requires disciples to go in person. We must step out of our comfort zone and go. Disciple making is not an option. We must teach all uh, that Jesus commanded us to obey, and we must obey all that He has commanded us. And finally, Disciple-making is grounded in the triune love of God. As Christians, we enter into a perfect triune love of God through Christ, and he is with us through the trials as we make disciples of Christ. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Lord, you came to us in Jesus, and we see that you gave your life for us sacrificially, that we may enter into a divine relationship with you. Lord, we thank you for making us your disciples May we give our lives as your followers here at Grace First to the work of your kingdom as we go and make disciples together. And Lord, may we make disciples who will give, also who give their lives to make more disciples. We know that this is a a work that entails hardship, rejection, and even isolation in this world. But we thank you for comforting, comforting us with the promise that you will always be with us. May we go in courage and boldness, knowing that you, the Almighty God, are with us. Empower us by your Spirit as we bear much fruit for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.